I truly praise the Lord for the opportunity to proclaim his word. I'm going to start today in a little bit of a different manner. I'm going to open by reciting Paul's letter to the Titus. Throughout my own growth in Christ, I have received much from others doing exactly this. And I pray that in a similar manner, you might be challenged and served. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles closed right now and just listen to the voice of God. I have someone up here in the front who's going to have his Bible open in case I need help, which means I don't need your help. So you can just be quiet and just try to rest and receive from the Word of God. May God bless the recitation of this letter. It's only 46 verses. It's not going to take too long. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, 
all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, and not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Rebuke and exhort with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This testimony is true. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up dissensions, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. When I send to you Artemis or Tychicus, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And help our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Pray with me. Your word is rich, Father. Thank you that you have not let us, left us without direction. Thank you that you have not left us without hope. What amazing grace has been purchased for us through Jesus. May he be magnified this day, I pray. Amen. In 1-1 of this letter, we're told that Paul wrote Titus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This too is why I proclaim these words today. Because I care about your faith and I want you to embrace what God defines as true, as right, as beautiful. He also says in verse 2, Paul wrote to Titus in the hope of eternal life. And I preach today with your eternity in mind, knowing that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So open up your Bibles to Titus. We focus today on, verses, on chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. The passage has four parts. The call to proclaim what accords with sound doctrine. The content to proclaim for various ages, genders, and positions. The reason to proclaim in relation to Christ's saving work. And finally, the reassertion of the call to insist on these things among the churches. So let us begin in chapter 2, verse 1, with the call to proclaim what accords with sound doctrine. As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound here expresses wholeness, health. So healthy doctrine is teaching that is free from spiritual error. It's that which, as it says in 1.1, aligns with the truth which accords with godliness. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, 
Paul says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now Paul, in contrast to these false teachers, is charging Titus to provide these exact same families with healthy teaching as revealed in God's book. Chapter 2.15, Titus must declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one, he says, should disregard God's word. So may God give us ears to hear this morning. The content to proclaim for various ages, genders, and positions, verses 2 through 10. Healthy teaching should lead to healthy living. Titus is to direct his teaching towards several groups in the churches, and he distinguishes these. Older men, older women, and through them reach the younger women. Young men impacted by Titus's example, and then bondservants. Now due to time this morning, we're not even going to be able to consider bondservants. Not only that, I've decided to focus only on a single quality that's the only quality apparent in all the different categories. And that quality is self-control. So let's begin in 2-2 with older men. These are not necessarily the official elders in the church, but are males advanced in age, any male. Advanced in age. We have a number of them right up here. In addressing older men, Paul is clarifying what the younger men are supposed to aspire for, what the younger women are to pray their husbands will become. So to the older men, I urge you today, As we gain these reminders of what accords with godliness, may your heart be soft and responsive. We read, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. While translations vary, we're targeting term three in that list, which the ESV renders self-control. This is not the same word listed at the end of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. That term refers to the restraint of emotions, passions, desires. Whereas this term for self-control refers to thinking wisely and living sensibly with moderation. The self-controlled person is prudent, thoughtful, Avoiding extremes and always living in his means. Paul expects older men to have learned to discern what is best at a given time and then to live in that way. When returning home from a long day at work, the godly older man consciously considers what is needed when he walks in the door. You resist the temptation to simply sit If your wife is in need of help, suffer, needs to talk, needs you to help the kids with homework, 
The self-controlled man is conscientious at work. He handles his finances well, recognizing that responsible headship demands not only thinking about the present, but thinking about the future. Not simply with respect to retirement, but with respect to preparing for vehicles that might wear out, or appliances or tools that get broken. He thus does not automatically spend money, but recognizes his stewardship. He is self-controlled. The older man plans and purposes for how to care for aging parents and for aging children. And oh, the godly older man appreciates all the strengths and the wisdom and the skill that his wife brings as she manages the household well. The self-controlled man is wise in leading and sustained in dependence. He guides his family in godliness. He prioritizes without compromise, gathering for worship with the saints. He's wise. He chooses to spend time with God, knowing that apart from Jesus, he can do nothing that will last. He's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. His life bears witness to a sustained hope in God so that when the storms of life come, he is steady, self-controlled. Older men, I exhort you to be self-controlled in accordance with sound doctrine. Older women, and through them, younger women. And we have a number of both groups in this room. Verses three through five, look with me there. In Christ's body, every member has a function, male and female, and Titus is told, urge the older women to be reverent in behavior. Now there's a verbal link here to what is in accord with or suitable with sound doctrine in 2.1. To be reverent in behavior is to align one's life with that which is fitting of a holy woman endowed with a priestly calling of displaying God's greatness through word and deed. After giving two specific sins of what does not accord with reverent behavior, Paul stresses that women reverent in behavior are those who teach what is good and so train the younger women. Now I want to pause here because it's that word for train that is directly related to the term for self-control. For an older woman to train younger women is to instill within them a pattern of wise thought or sensibility that has first been enjoyed already by the older woman. As Paul says elsewhere, I desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. The older woman teaches, it says, what is good, or perhaps better, what is beautiful. It's the content of her teaching, directly out of the book. She is not a hypocrite, but one who can truly say, follow me as I follow Christ. The self-controlled woman that measures her decisions, her words, her actions is now through her teaching an instrument of training as she expresses her own reverent behavior in the presence of the younger woman. 
She's to train the young woman, it says, look with me, to love her husband and children, to be self-controlled, that's our word, to be pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to her own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. Failure to embrace God's definition of womanhood opens the door for outsiders to criticize God's word, for you end up inaccurately bearing witness to what it means to follow God. And for the sake of this morning, it means that older women and younger women alike need to pursue self-control. Now, right after indicating his assumption that young women will be married, it's fascinating, It's just assumed in this text. And after stressing the need to love their families as the dominant sphere of their ministry, Paul calls young women to have self-control, being measured, balanced, and wise. Oh, how many are the responsibilities of godly women, young and old? How much sensibility is needed to carry out her various tasks? Reflecting on the excellent wife's godliness throughout her lifetime, the sage in Proverbs 31 tells us that she worked with her hands and was diligent. She provided food for her family and served the needy. She multiplied income, spoke with wisdom, and taught kindness. This is a humble, strong, wise, and skilled woman who used her talents and her strengths for the good of the family and for the glory of God. And with such responsibilities and such a high calling, how vitally important it is to have measured, healthy reason. Of such a self-controlled woman, the sage declares the heart of her woman trust, the heart of her husband trusts in her he shall have no lack of gain. She's a woman who fears the Lord, who is to be praised. So coming back to Titus 2. So that the word of God may not be reviled, I urge you ladies in this room, old or young, let God define for you what is beautiful, not the world. Let God define what is good, what is right. Pursue a self-controlled life. Younger men, impacted by Titus' example, we begin in verse 6. And that is most of you in this room. Pursue self-control. This quality was one of many that Titus called for the women and the older men, but it is the only quality that he says young men need in this text. It's fascinating. Self-control is everything for young men, Paul says. He recognizes the challenge young men face in living sensibly with control of one's thoughts and actions. So here's where he camps. With Titus, if you're a college or seminarian in this room, most of whom, at least many of whom, are younger men. Guard your eyes. 
Guard your minds, guard your hearts, guard your ears, guard your hands. Be measured and wise in what you watch, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. It matters. When you are with others, be self-controlled in your speech. When you're in your private life, live as if Jesus is with you, for he is. Don't suppress the truth as if God will not take account of every deed and every thought. Be sensible, seeking to honor God in how you treat others, including the young women in this room. To be self-controlled here means to keep your head in the game, to keep your head in your studies, to keep your head in your job, to keep your head in your family relationships. You have one charge, be self-controlled. So wisely control your passions, your spending patterns, your diet, your exercise, your devotion life, your tongue, your eyes, your thoughts. Prioritize what is good. God help us. Give time to God's word, time to prayer, time to corporate worship, knowing that these things are right. That's the sensible way to live. Look for a godly wife who's seeking to fulfill God's call for young women and do not compromise. And look for godly older men who are modeling what Paul calls for here and seek their mentoring. Control yourself in wisdom, young men. This teaching accords with sound doctrine and is your pattern for godliness. But Paul doesn't leave us there with a bunch of commands. Jump with me down to verse 11. Why? Why must Titus urge these things? Why must we seek self-control? Titus must urge men and women of all ages, all social classes, to pursue self-control and all the other virtues because... Look at the text. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In this passage, God's saving grace appears, instructs, and gives hope. All of this by Jesus Christ. Let's consider this text. Verse 11, God's saving grace has appeared. Grace expresses a positive or favorable gift from God. And in 2.11, this grace bears a saving nature, it says. This grace appeared in Christ's first coming and is available to every believer in this room. Recall chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You can enjoy this saving grace today. God's grace bears a saving quality, it says, for all people. That is, people of all sorts, regardless of age, gender, and class. It's the same groups of people that he just referred to. God's grace is for all of us in this room. And it's saving grace. For Paul, salvation has three tenses. 
We're all familiar with Ephesians 2, 8. By grace, you have been saved. That's past grace. This is the grace of justification. That is, wherein God declares us right because the punishment that we were due was put on Jesus. Paul speaks of this in chapter 3, verse 7. Just glance down there. So that being justified, how? By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That justification purchased something. Indeed, the grace that justifies also glorifies. That is, that same grace is going to make us like Jesus. We have hope of eternal life because salvation is not only past, salvation is future. Hear Paul in 1 Corinthians, sorry, Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his grace. Sorry. We have now been justified by his blood. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? That's future salvation from the wrath of God. We've been saved from sin's penalty. We will be saved from sin's presence. But that's not it. Even now, right now, in this room, at this present moment, those in Christ are being saved from sin's power. Jesus' blood purchased power not only to justify us, make us right with God, but to sanctify us, that is, grow us in godly character. That's part of God's grace that appeared in the first coming of Jesus. Hear Paul's reasoning, what he's thinking. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, present time, it is the power of God. God's grace has appeared bringing salvation past, present, and future for you and for me, and this reality should motivate us to battle for self-control, confident that the one who raised Jesus from the dead is able to give us victory, how? By his grace. But how does he do it? Look with me at verse 12. God's saving grace trains us to live. God's saving grace is an active grace. The verb the ESV uses is it's training us to live in ways pleasing to God. If you are a Christian today, you have the most able personal trainer in the world, and he will never leave you and stop working good for you. He'll never stop. God sent his saving grace in Jesus, not only to educate us on what is true, but to guide and shape us for doing what is right. By training us, God's grace develops our skill and our practice of discipline that then enables us to live responsibly and to make wise decisions. Grace is doing all that. The main purpose of the training that grace supplies is that we might live in ways pleasing to God. 
The verb renouncing is part of the necessary means toward this living. So I render the sentence this way. God's grace trains us so that having renounced ungodliness and worldly passions, we might live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Renouncing. That's a strong verb. We see it in 116. Let your eye move, move there. Where those who are unbelieving and defiled by the things of the world, they profess to know God, but they deny. That is, they renounce God by their works. So what does God say? They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Regardless of what you profess with your lips, I ask you, do you deny God by your works? Are you renouncing him or are you renouncing sin? Using the exact same word, Paul told Timothy, if we deny God, he will deny us. Yet what Paul is telling Titus, hear this, what Paul is telling Titus is that God's grace has appeared not only to forgive us, but to make us faithful. There's hope. There is no holiness without denial. So we must renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. These are qualities that were part of the old man in Adam who was crucified and is now dead in Jesus. So I urge you, don't resuscitate him. Ungodliness. It refers to a failure by word or deed to properly revere, resemble, reflect, or represent God as those made in his image. Worldly passions, these are the desires for things that God forbids or that are at least unwise for us in this moment. Worldly passions. As a believer, everywhere you go, you bear the name of God. And I urge you, don't bear his name in vain. We are to renounce such sins. And by doing this, by doing this, we gain power. Power to live. Look with me at the text. Having denied a place for ungodliness and worldly passions, we are empowered to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives today, Paul says. Godly refers to properly revering, resembling, reflecting, and representing God through our words and through our deeds. Upright refers to a character or thought or behavior that properly aligns with God's definition of right order, wherein he is at the top. An upright life is one that recognizes the right order of reality and God is first in your life. But the very first quality that Paul says, the grace of God is training us to see lived out in our lives, self-control. Look with me. 
Live sensibly. The grace of God is here to help you live that way. You may say, Dr. D, my sin is too big. It's too besetting. It's conquered me far too many times. I can't beat it. And I ask you, how big is your God? Does this text not declare, hear this, does this text not declare that the very reason Titus is to call both old and young to self-control is because God's saving grace has appeared? The saving grace of God is here to train you to think and act wisely. His grace precedes your pursuit. It appeared 2,000 years ago. You showed up way into the story. The text does not say, be self-controlled so that God can be on your side. No, it says, God is already 100% on your side. And his saving grace that has declared you right is also here to train you in godliness and to make you self-controlled. That's what the text says. And this teaching accords with sound doctrine. And with this grace, hear this, you can be the same person on a date as you are at church. By God's grace, what you do on the internet can be just as pure as what you do in your devotions. The way that you talk to your parents can be just as wholesome as the way that you talk to your pastor. God's grace can do that in your life. God's grace trains us so that having said no to ungodliness and worldly passions, we are now empowered to honor God with our purchases, our dress, our driving, our media engagement, our friendships. Whether studying or singing, texting or talking, blogging or jogging, this text is saying God's grace is here to help you live. Believe it. Live by faith. Trust this text. Don't renounce your God. Don't renounce his grace. He's enough. And all of this helps us. All of this help is coming to us, it says, in the present age. Verse 12. In the present age. Paul's not talking about perfection overnight but a very true progression in holiness over an entire lifetime. When we encounter God's grace, we gain a new direction away from sin and toward God. When you stumble, fall toward the cross. That's what true believers do. Don't be like those who profess to know God in the light, but who deny him in the night by their works. God's saving grace is great. You can fight for your joy in God. Why? Because he's for you and not against you. And if you truly know God, you have the greatest saving force in the universe working for your holiness. Take hope today. Take hope. God's saving grace supplies hope. Look at verse 13 with me. Along with pardon and power, God's saving grace purchased 
promises. And these promises motivate our present pursuit of holiness. What we hope for tomorrow changes who we are today. Consider how this promise might impact your life. If you remember, Jesus said that the pure in heart will see God. And if you really want to see him, that promise will alter the way that you look at the internet. Or what you think about when you're in the shower. This is why Paul adds that to those who are living for God... Those who are living for God are what? Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. The text calls Jesus first the great God, which means he has all power and authority, all that you need to see self-control gained in your life and in mine. But not only is he a great God, he is a savior stressing his love and his purpose to make us ready for himself. He is able to save us completely when we behold him. God's grace appeared once in Christ's first coming, but this text says it will appear again in the form of glory. Glory is God's visible radiance, a light that makes shadows flee, including those spiritual shadows in our own lives. One glimpse of Jesus Messiah's glory in all of its greatness, in all of its saving power, is going to purify us and transform us completely, leaving no residue of sin in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, hope in that day, and let it motivate you to live self-controlled lives right now. Finally, verse 14. God's saving grace comes to us through Jesus. Consider the synthesis of Jesus' work. It's so beautiful. Take it home with you today, what we're about to see. Our great God and Savior, who will appear again, did appear earlier, giving himself for us. That is, it was a willing gift. He gave himself, and he did so for us. That's the language of substitution. In substitution, Jesus willingly received God's wrath in our place so that you and I might enjoy life, that we might be freed from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and ultimately from sin's presence. Jesus died so that that might happen. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us for two parallel reasons. Look with me at the text in verse 14. First, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness at great cost. What that means is that at great cost, Jesus purchased our freedom. We are no longer a slave of sin. Indeed, we have a stronger master. Not only this, 
It says, he gave himself, second reason, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The presence of God's grace in Christ does not make our working unnecessary. His grace makes our working possible. Two reasons Jesus died and rose were that we would be freed to obey and that he might fully clean a people for himself who count following him as the most precious thing on the planet. Apart from God's grace, we could have no victory. Indeed, we would not even desire to have victory. But his grace has appeared, reshaping our will and our work for his good pleasure. Because our holiness is dependent on his grace, he gets the glory, we get the help. In conclusion... As Paul commands in 2.15, I have declared these things. I urge you, by the saving grace that God supplies, past, present, and future, be self-controlled. Jesus died to make us self-controlled. Jesus died to save completely you and me for his own possession. So let today be a time to ready yourself to be with Jesus forever. Celebrate and walk in such grace today, even as you wait for his glory to appear in full. Amen.